Well, I don't have a Thanksgiving message today. I'm sorry. Uh, I, but there is maybe to make an application out by the time we're done about Thanksgiving. Uh, what I'm just doing is going on with First Peter. I, have a, I started a series uh, last summer uh, in First Peter, and we're up to chapter 1, verse 13. And I have another passage here I'd like to get into. Uh, and it raises the question, is holiness outdated? That's something that seems like we don't talk a lot about anymore. I, in my work, um, the other day, somebody came up with a song that talked about holiness. But it was all about how we have been proclaimed holy by the Lord. And that's true. There, there's, there's scripture that backs that up. But today's message is going to be a little bit different from that. It's a little more of the idea that holiness is not something that we have achieved, something that we're still working at. And for that purposes, I'd like to get into 1 Peter. We can read this together. Let's see if I can make all the technology work here. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to break apart this passage and understand what holiness is about and how we can be prepared for the for the future that you have for us. Lord, um, pray that you would guide our thoughts. Pray that uh, you would uh, help us to stay away from things that are not true, that your scripture is not teaching. Help us to be open to what your scripture is teaching and to apply it to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage starts off with a there, uh, therefore. And it, there's a context that's involved with the passage. The passage is hearkening back to um, the salvation that's being talked about earlier on in the passage. 
This is a salvation that the prophets wanted to search out that they didn't fully understand. It's a salvation that the angels longed to look into. And that's the context that we have here. Therefore, since we have such a great salvation, set your hope fully and be holy. I'm going to play a little bit of, pull a little grammar on you right now. Commentators I've read say that the NIV and the New American Standard Version of the Bible treat verses 13 through 16 as if there are five commands here, five imperatives, and giving them all equal weight. But actually, in the Greek, from what I'm told, the, there are actually just two verbs. They are to set your hope and to be holy. The other imperatives are actually participles in the gram- grammatical text. Participles, if you remember from your grammar days, are, they, are, they work like adjectives. They modify a noun. In this case, they're modifying the, the understood you of the passage. You be, set your hope fully. You be holy. And how do you do that? You do that by preparing your mind for action and you prepare and you by being sober and you become holy by not conforming to former passions. It kind of raises the question, though, along the mind, uh, what does this mean to prepare your mind for action? And the words here actually start, they talk about uh, girding up your, uh, your loins, the loins of your mind, if you can imagine that. It's a very graphic picture that Peter has in mind. He has in mind a, a tunic sort of thing that's sort of a rectangular piece of cloth that um, uh, some of them are longer, some of them are shorter. They, um, uh, some of them, sometimes they would fall about the knees. That's oftentimes what we see with Roman soldiers. Or if you were in the Senate, the Roman Senate or something, it might go all the way down to your ankles. This is actually a, a Moroccan Arabic, Moroccan Arab uh, tunic a, uh, or a... Uh, or a gondora, as they would call it, kind of a summer outfit. But it's, a, it's basically a tunic, like uh, what, the, what Peter would have had in mind. And they would have had a belt on um, that would have kind of held it up. Mine's a little bit too long here. but uh, <laughs> So, uh, you, you know, you're, you're pretty comfortable. You know, you can go around. You, you can all day like this, uh, especially if you've got shorts on it or something underneath. Um, <laughs> But, uh, which I haven't done, but uh, you're not very prepared for action as long as you're just relaxed like this. You're, 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 you can't do an awful lot. This last, uh, well, I guess it was two weekends ago, we went on our, was it two weekends ago? No, last weekend was, last Saturday, we were on our hunting trip, weren't we? And we had a, a major wrestling match after the, after the hunting, no guns in hand when we were doing this. Um, <laughs> it was uh, while we were relaxing, uh, uh, let's see, there was Sam and Zach and who all was ganging up on Stan at the time. But uh, <laughs> Stan did a beautiful double-leg takedown that would have made John Smith very proud. Uh, ankle takedown right at, his, right at his feet. A little, head, little hand fake into his eyes first that got, you know, got him looking up and then into the feet. It was wonderful, beautiful. Um, but if Stan had had on a tunic like I've got on right now, he would have had a little bit of a tough time doing, doing his, his knee drop to get into the knees, to, uh, to get in there. It would kind of hung him up a little bit. He wouldn't have been prepared for action. And so the picture Peter has in mind is that you've got to gird up your loins. You, and they do that by kind of wrapping up the thing like this. <laughs> and uh, 
and taking it over and, and then wrapping it around the, the belt. And once you got that all in, in shape, then you're in great shape. You can run. You could do your drop step if you need to. You could, you're all set to do what you need to do. You're prepared for action. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> yes. Anyway, that's a tunic. And when Peter talks about girding up the loins of your mind for action, I hope you won't forget what that means now. <laughs> I hope you have it well on your mind. Um, <laughs> that's what he's after. The n- next phrase he uses is being sober being sober. And it doesn't mean that you never laugh as a Christian, but it does mean to not be overcome by anything else, to not be overcome by alcohol, of course. If you're drunk, if you're inebriated, then you're overcome by external things. Um, That would be the opposite of being sober. To be sober is to be in your right mind, to be thinking clearly. And that's what Peter is telling us we need to do. Not let other things come in and distract us from what we need to be prepared for. While I'm on the wrestling theme here, has anybody heard of Dan Gable? Stan, a few people, a few people in the back. Dan Gable might be one of the most famous athletes. One of the, uh, I mean, he ranks up there with Tiger Woods, with any of the greatest athletes uh, that you can think of. There was an article read. Uh, there was an article written by him by a writer of uh, ESPN uh, many years ago. Um, Eric Neal was describing uh, this. Dan went 181 matches, won through his prep. I mean, his high school and his college careers in, re- in college career in wrestling. He went on to get a, a gold medal in 1972, the Olympics. He um, um, he. After that, went on to lead the Iowa Hawkeyes to 18 national championships, including, um, including nine perfect seasons. He was, uh, he's considered almost immortal when it comes to the sports world. The title of this article is The Loss That Made the Man. I just said his record through high school and college was 181 and 1. On Saturday, March 28, 1970, Dan Gable of Iowa State lost to Larry Owings of the University of Washington in the 142-pound weight class at the 1970 NCAA Wrestling Championships in Evanston, Illinois. Gable, a senior, entered the match with a perfect career record of 181-0 and through high school and college. In chemistry class, he wrote scouting reports in his notebook, Height, weight, and record of his opponent. Lists of the guy's tendencies. Stick figure sketches of moves and counters. He marked time between one match and the next the way they do at Cape Canaveral. You can tell this is dated. Cape Kennedy. The countdown began when the referee held up his arm after a win. Every second, every day, every gesture and ritual from that moment on ticked him closer to zero hour. The next time the whistle blew. No variation no distractions. Gable's older sister, Diane, had been murdered when he was a high school sophomore. He knew who had done it even before the police told him. He had a bad feeling about the guy. Maybe, he had, maybe if he'd said something earlier, he could have saved her. He couldn't bring her back. He could only wrestle. I was wrestling to recover, 
to lift my family up somehow, he says. I thought every match would make things a little better. No variation, no distractions. And then, with one match to go, he wavered. Three days before the final, he read a headline. Owings said he had come to the tournament to beat him. Gable never read headlines. Why now? Two nights before the match, he attended a banquet in which he was honored as wrestling's man of the year. He never went to banquets. He didn't care about awards. Why now? In his early matches in the tournament, he found himself glancing up, eyeballing Owings on another mat. He never looked anywhere but straight through the heart of his opponent. Why now? Thirty minutes before the final, when he should have been going through his routine, ten, nine, eight, counting off, he would spend time by himself thinking about his opponent, his favorite moves, how he would counter them, visualizing the matches in his mind. He was ta- but instead of doing that, he was taping a television interview, stumbling through ta- takes in, what, in which he looked at the, into the camera and tempted the fates. Hi, uh, I'm Dan Gable. Come watch, my, watch me finish my career, 182 and 0. Why now? And on the mat with Owings, even when he had a lead halfway through the third period, he heard conversations going on in the crowd, noticed people moving in the stands. He was elsewhere. Why now? I don't know. I got caught up. I got distracted, he says. I wasn't doing anything the way I normally would, and I'm really not sure why. Maybe he got a little full of himself. Maybe he hadn't made Owings a goal, a target, the way Owings had focused on him. Maybe the pressure to win every single time out. He had gone undefeated and winning three consecutive Iowa State titles at West Waterloo High School, too, 64-0 in a high school. Maybe all that finally broke something inside him. Maybe the weight of Diane's memory was something he had to finally put down. It could have been all these things, he thought. He stood there on the mat watching Owen's hand go up. Can't even remember if he said anything to him. Didn't know what to do. There was no way to mark time. No next match. No countdown. He was lost. The guilt hit him in waves, first letting his family down by losing, and then all over again for letting harm come to his sister. I didn't know until then how connected they were in my mind, he says. The drive back to campus was quiet. He couldn't speak, had no idea what to say. He walked into Byer Hall, the recreation center at Iowa State, went up to the wrestling room, found someone who would get down on the mat with him. No variation, no distractions. I was still good, he says. That kind of shocked me. It made me know I could go on. He went on to win the World Freestyle Championships in 71. In 72, he won an Olympic gold medal in Munich. And beginning in 1976, he became the most successful coach in the history of collegiate sports, leading the University of Iowa to 15 NCAA titles and 21 consecutive Big Ten crowns. The losses, first Diane and then the match to Owings, made him. He didn't just go on, he got better. That was the hardest part, he says. The focus came at such a high price, with so much hurt underneath. You ask him, what is perfection? What has it meant to chase it for so long? He's still in pursuit, he says. If I could figure out how I could have gone back and saved Diane, and how I could have gone back and not had that loss in that tournament, and still go on, gone on to be the same person I am today, that would be perfect. Pictures there of Dan, advertisement with ASICs. Once you've wrestled, everything else in life is easy. 
don't know if that's true. Dan was born in 48 and, and uh, seven years old. He'd be 60 years old now. He's had two hip replacements and several knee surgeries. But, uh, but he learned a lot through his lessons and his hardships he went through wrestling. Pictures of him wrestling in the Olympics, getting his gold medal, his lost Larry Owings. Let's move on to the second command. Be holy in all your conduct, as he who calls you is holy. You know, I see a lot of celebrations today of the fact that God has made us holy. And there's a lot of worship songs that, that reflect that as well. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, later on in chapter 2, verse 9, Peter will say that we are already perfect in God's eyes. That's because of Christ's work not because of ours. But for now, here and in chapter 2, verse 5, Peter says, we're called to be holy. We haven't arrived yet. In chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, Peter is quoting Leviticus eleven forty four, when he says that, uh, be holy as I am holy. And he gives something of a definition there here, even at this point, that uh, to be holy is to not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. And why is that? Uh, he goes on to say that for you are ransomed, not with, the, uh, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, Second time here in Peter that Peter is alluded to the idea of, of silver and gold. Again, uh, the churches he's writing to are, li- are in an area where there is a lot of uh, where silver and go- gold coinage was first invented, uh, where you put the two metals together. And so it was a very, um, very much a, a, an illusion that the people in those areas that he was writing to would have fully understood the, the importance of, the preciousness of. But we were not ransomed with such futile things as that. Instead, it was the precious Lamb of God, the, His blood that paid for us. And of course, Peter is quoting a Le- Leviticus 11.44 when he talks about being holy. Holiness is not. Let's talk about a few things there. What it, holiness is not. One thing it's not is that it's not Holier than thou. That actually is the opposite of holiness in a lot of ways. Uh, Being holier than thou is a form of trying to indebt yourself to God or indebt God to you and or indebt other people to you. It's kind of a matter of kind of a a means of one-upmanship. And that's not what we're talking about at all. We'll see later on when we get into discussions about what is actually holy that it's not a matter of of doing something that makes you appear more holy than other people. In North Africa, where I lived uh, for a number of years, uh, there was a, uh, my, one day, my, my guard, the guard of our language center that I was running uh, came back. He, he was just overnight. And meanwhile, between being gone one day and coming back the next day, he had a black mark, a bruise on his forehead. And, Anybody that knows Muslim culture, 
which I didn't fully at the time. In fact, it was a Muslim who came up and explained it to me that it was a mark of holiness. It showed that he had been praying a lot. He'd had his forehead down to the ground and that sometimes people will actually even go out and trying to, they'll try to manufacture that mark of holiness by hitting themselves or doing something to cause that bruise to be there so that they can look more holy than other people as if they've been praying an awful lot. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not what Peter is talking about. He's also not talking about the spiritual disciplines, as good as they are. And they might be a way of getting to holiness. Things like fasting and, and praying, even memorizing the Bible. All great things that can maybe help a person reach holiness. But they're not holiness in and of themselves. Holiness isn't a matter of choosing homeschool or private school, or public school, government school. That, I don't think anybody has a problem with that. We all understand that. Even though we, it, again, might be a way of getting there and that we're intentionally trying to guide our children and shield them from different influences, shield them from, from uh, certain kinds of peer pressure, trying to help them get a viewpoint in our schooling that, that maybe they might not get otherwise or, or, or get a viewpoint at least in the home um, that they might not get otherwise. Holiness is also not avoiding every appearance of evil. Am I stepping on everybody's shoes, uh, feet now? Uh, everybody's toes? Uh, comes from Second uh, Thessalonians where it talks about avoid every kind of evil. Uh, some people have have sometimes paraphrased that as, as avoiding every appearance of evil and as a result felt like they need to stay away from a movie theater or, or a bowling alley or, or a lot of different things, like stay out of a bar. But, uh, and not that those places are necessarily good and we do definitely have to be sober and we have to have our thinking caps on and be thinking clearly, but avoiding those things doesn't necessarily make you holy. And actually, the passage in Second Thessalonians should be translated, avoiding every occurrence of evil, every actual evil. It's not the appearance of evil, of evil that's wrong. It's the occurrence, the, the actual evil in itself. Also, holiness is not a matter of dressing a certain way. On our hunting trip, we had a good discussion. Uh, uh, Jerry had raised the question and Stan and Kevin had a lot of insight into the idea of, of what's the difference between somebody of Mennonite background and somebody of Amish background. We have great discussions on these trips. You ought to go on. <laughs> and uh, dress is very important. If you've been on a train to Pennsylvania or something, and uh, you will see a lot of people dressed. I know when I went out to West Virginia with Todd uh, uh, last fall, uh, when we were... Uh, looking, or was it last spring? Anyway, when we were looking into the, the film thing, we saw a lot of people of Amish background, and they had a unique dress to them. Uh, in my own family, I grew up with the idea that you don't wear tennis shoes to church. Can you imagine that? Uh, my, that was something that was just an absolute no in my family, and, and I kind of grew up with that, and, and I used to actually insist on that with my own sons for a while, and Todd's got his tennis, excuse me, Scott's got his tennis shoes on today and good for him. I thought about wearing mine just so I could show that I'm not mixing up the idea that, that by ten, wearing tennis shoes or not wearing tennis shoes, you're somehow holy or not holy. It's not a matter of dress, although there is a certain matter of, of, 
I, I found it interesting, the, you know, when I've gone to Lion and Lamb weddings, it's been interesting to see all the people, all the guys with suits and ties on. Then they never, when I never see them with those otherwise. What is it that's different about a wedding than, is di- than about coming to church, I wonder? Uh, why is it that uh, we feel like dressing down at church is okay, but, but dressing up for weddings is, is, is uh, but dressing down for weddings is not okay? Kind of an interesting thought or idea. Uh, but it doesn't make you holy, does it? Dressing or avoiding a dress a certain way. The word holy in, in Strong's comes from the word uh, kodush, which I found very interesting because we all, because those of us who know Arabic know the word kadus, uh, kodus, uh, which is the Arabic word for holy as well, very similar to Hebrew. And it means sacred or holy or set apart, to be set apart, dedicated to God. Uh, the Greek word hagios means something very similar, sacred, set apart, and also with Hagios in Greek, it also has the additional idea of an awful thing, something greatly to be feared, awe-inspiring. You may not be aware, but there was a time in my life that I was pretty out of control when it comes to cursing. That might sound strange to you. Uh, <laughs> um, it's one of the reasons why I took up wrestling, actually. It was a way to avoid cursing. Can you imagine that? I, <laughs> I, uh, I was always very small. Yeah. Kathy, you've, on your answer machine, you had a little Larry D or something, <laughs> I think. <laughs> At one time, those were fighting words for me. <laughs> I, was, uh, I, gra- I, was in, I was 16 years old in high school. I started kindergarten at four. Uh, my generation, my peers were always ahead of me. Uh, both in maturity as well as in physical stature. I wrestled 105 pounds my senior year in high school, almost made it to 98. Um, I was dieting down. I did die down from about, about 120. But uh, nevertheless, I was small. I was a little guy. And I used to get bullied a lot when I was a kid, actually. I was, I was pretty mature, and I'm sure I did some things that probably prompted some of the bullying that happened, too. Uh, I was... And I don't blame all the guys necessarily. They did all the bullying of me at different times. But uh, there was a point in my life that my mother actually encouraged me to start cursing. The reason being was that she reasoned nobody knew when I was upset or angry. And if I would just curse once in a while, I would let them know that I was actually upset. And so I actually began to incorporate a little bit of cursing into my language. But, you know, I, that was the world's thinking coming in on me, and I didn't really have anything to, to hold me in check. And I found it began to get more and more and more out of control. And I remember, still remember the day. One day I was out playing baseball with, with my little brother and my mom, and uh, I was pitching. My mom was catching. My brother was batting. And my mom, my mom was quite an athlete herself, and she threw the ball back to me after, after I'd thrown the pitch for my brother. And... I missed the ball, and I was upset with myself, and I let, string a string of, I let go with a string of curse words. And I was, my mom was shocked, my brother was shocked, and I was shocked. I, uh, I was shocked that such a thing had come out of my mouth, and I resolved I've got to do something different here. I've got a grip on this. I've got to get a grip on it. It's getting out of control. Um, 
And that's the way the world does have to go, the way it influences us along the way. I didn't have a biblical mindset. I was adrift to follow what the world around me was saying. Thanks to computer programmers, we have the phrase today, garbage in, garbage out. I think it's, it's abbreviated and pronounced Geigo. I hope I'm not mispronouncing that. Uh, it's a rule of thumb stating that when faulty data are fed into a computer, the information that emerges will also be faulty. The idea is that you can't get right answers if you start out with wrong information to begin with. A good application here is to listen carefully, by the way, uh, before you speak and make sure you've got good information before you give an opinion or make a decision. But Peter is concerned here that the churches he's writing to have right information to start out so that they can have right results. Perfect holiness is the goal. So what about this right information that we should focus on in our lives? There's absolutely no sin in God at all, and he won't allow any into his heaven. We've got to stand before him someday and give account. Based, we, will stand, uh, we will only get to stand before him based upon the work of Christ, and yet there will be a judgment seat whereby he will, imagine, he will, he will evaluate our works and the judgment seat of Christ will get the laurel crown or not based upon our, what we've done. We'll get crowns based upon our works that we have done for him. And he's holding us accountable for that. Imagine yourself being a slave. and You're on the auction block. And your family's being held behind. You're being separated from them. You're going to be going to a new master. The past is bleak. The future looks even bleaker. And along comes somebody and pays the ransom for you. He redeems you. He frees you. Can you imagine at that point not then using your freedom to turn and do what you could to help free your family as well and others too? We also have been ransomed by the blood of the Messiah, the Son of God. He was was spotless and clean on his own. His righteousness matched God the Father's. It took the death of one who was from infinity to atone for all sin for our sin, for your and my sin. And God the Father chose him before the foundation of the world to accomplish this. Before there was even sin in this world, God chose the Messiah. God chose his son to perform this act. We'd be traitors toward others in our attempt to raise ourselves above others. He knew that we would be that way. We'd be imprisoned until, and we'd have to be redeemed. We would need a Savior. The result is that God has drawn us into his world, his kingdom, through our belief in that Savior he chose. Our faith and hope are in God, and he purifies our hearts to love others. It's not with perishable things such as silver and gold that we've been redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ. Peter goes on to rhapsodize about the frailness of human flesh compared to God's eternal word. We're all like grass. Our lives are insignificantly small. But God's word is eternal. It's a seed from God, and it's it's a message of his love. How are we doing here? 
It's a message of his love. That's the directed panspermia we were talking about in, the, in Sunday school. It's not, our, it's not life from another planet that came from us. It's the seed of love, the seed of the word of the God that has come to us from God in heaven, from another world, from heaven itself. Before we were full of garbage, the feudal ways of the world around us, things like the five feudal ways that Peter lists here in the passage that he has, negatively stated. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Here would be holiness, avoiding things like this. Negatively stated, it's, it's avoiding attitudes and actions that are against love. Malice, the desire to inflict injury, harm, or suffering on another due to a hostile impulse or out of deep-seated meanness. Deceit, deliberate dishonesty with one another. Hypocrisy, pretended piety, pretended love. Envy, a resentful desire for something someone else has that you don't have. I want what you have, and I'm willing to hurt you to get it. In Arab culture, they have the expression of the evil eye that they're all very conscious of. You're not ever supposed to compliment a family on their baby because it might invite the evil eye. And they have all sorts of talismans to protect against the evil eye. The evil eye is the evil eye of jealousy. So you never tell somebody something good. Or if somebody says something good about you, then you've got to quickly come back with a, with a response um, that, um, that uh, basically uh, acknowledges that uh, it, it depreciates, I guess, the, the compliment that was given to you in order to protect from the evil eye. We may not have the idea of the evil eye, but envy is certainly something that is very dangerous in our culture, more so than we realize. Slander, lies intended to defame someone or hurt the reputation. You know, in a survival of the fittest world, which precedes Darwin, by the way, uh, things like malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander make sense. Anything that will give you a leg up on another person is good. Anybody here follow this series, Survivor? Nobody here did that? Nobody wasted their time doing that? Well, good. I'm glad. <laughs> I've, saw, I've seen maybe one episode, maybe two episodes uh, uh, of Survivor, somewhere along the line. Um, the couple that I saw, those things were, were very obvious in what was going on. There was a lot of malice hidden underneath the surface and a lot of deceit, hiding that malice oftentimes. There's a lot of hypocrisy, pretended friendship in order to win over the other person because you wanted to be the last person standing. There was a lot of envy. People would be jealous of other people's abilities or their, their reputation with the rest of the group. There was a lot of slander, telling of lies, trying to get an, a, a heads up on somebody. Suddenly our conscience is cleared and our minds are cleared to apprehend reality and to choose what we focus on. Peter says, if you're really a believer in the Son of God, nurse on the Word, long for it, feed on it. It's pure spiritual food as opposed to the garbage of the world. So how do we get to holiness? Well, feasting on God's Word is a good way to get there. 
Our goal is love. That's what holiness is really all about. Love for God, love for others. That's how you measure your, your, your holiness. So what's your love like? Obeying God's word to love one another and increasing in that love is how we get there. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, then these things you will follow. There's a song that my son introduced me to here recently by Talon Acacia, uh, Garbage In. Got the words right there. Very good. Talon Acacia, two sisters. Uh, they are... Uh, uh, they were, they, their parents are Christians, raised them in a Christian home, and uh, uh, they've got some great words. This is one of their good songs, I think. Their parents are very involved in all sorts of helping with the poor, rescue mission type things and inner city type things, need things that are going on. Well, garbage in, garbage out. We pay the price, and that is what we have. We either choose holiness or we don't. We're affected by what we take in. It's what Peter is trying to tell us. How can we emphasize the word more in our lives? How can we take in good, solid food? How can we nurse on that pure spiritual milk even more so that what we take in ends up being good things that come out? The love to God, the love to others that need to be expressed in so many ways, whether it be time or finances or whatever we can do in showing our love to others, sharing the gospel. That is the goal. That's what holiness is all about. Well, how about some applications? Have you accepted the payment God made for you to redeem you? Have you accepted his son? If not, I'd love to talk with you. Several, any of us would love to talk with you. How about uh, recognizing that you have no reason for pride? Sometimes Christians can be very prideful people. We're people who are saved by grace, and sometimes we're not fully aware or not remembering the grace that has saved us. There's no reason for room for a Christian to be proud. We stand before God, not on our own holiness, but on the holiness of Christ, as we together strive towards that love without, that brings us holiness, What's your hope set upon? That might be another possible application. You might check yourself. Is, it, is your hope set upon the revelation, the grace is to be revealed at the revelation of Christ? If not, why not? What do you need to do to make sure that your hope is set upon that, that that's your motivation in life? Are you struggling to be holy as he who called you is holy? Is your standard for holiness based upon obedience to love? And finally, can you increase God's word in your life somehow so that you don't have so much garbage going in, so that you have more love that's coming out in the end? There are probably other applications you could make, but these are a few. Last week in our sharing time that we're, we're just about to go to in a moment as well. Rachel shared, I remember, uh, from Hebrews 12, uh, 12 through 14. And I was struck at the time that what an appropriate verse that was and how well that goes with First Peter. It says, uh, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet 
so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, um, we aren't holy. We're so far from the love that you want us to to display to other people. Lord, uh, we're so imperfect in what we do. Thank you that you've covered our uncleanness with your perfect love. Your perfect love that cost you the blood of your own son. And Lord, draw us more into your image. Help us to achieve that holiness that you've commanded us to reach, that perfection. Help us to gird up the loins of our mind, to uh, be sober, not be distracted by the things around us. Help us to not lose any more matches than we have to, like, like Dan Gable. Perfection is such a tough thing to reach. We'd never reach it on our own. We recognize that. But you give us perfection someday. And you give us the option right now of choosing to take in the right things, the, the milk, that what comes out isn't garbage. Eventually what will come out of us will be love towards others as well. 